I'll tell you what I like about Chinese people. They're hanging in there with the chopsticks, aren't they? You know they've seen the fork. They're staying with the sticks. I'm impressed by that. I don't know how they missed it. Chinese farmer gets up, works in the shovel, works in the field with a shovel all day. Shovel, spoon, come on. There it is. You're not plowing 40 acres with a couple of pool cues. Good morning. It's Friday, Police Craft Friday, December the 15th, and this is The True Conservative. Welcome to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today. So today, after the serenity prayer and the patriotic song of the day, we will have military shorts, motivational shorts, Bishop Barron, 33 Strategies of War, and Police Craft. All that and more when I get back. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I shouldn't change, the courage to change the things I should, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen.
Thank you, thank you. And now the military shorts. What happens if a pilot ignores strict instructions from a general? Well, they can be punished. Let me explain. In Afghanistan, while on a risky rescue mission, there was an army ranger unit that found themselves trapped on Takur Gar's ridge. They were under heavy enemy fire. In desperate need of close air support, the rangers called for backup. A group of F-14s responded and dropped a round of bombs on the enemy. But after emptying their arsenal, orders came for the F-14s to return to the carrier. However, one specific pilot didn't listen to the instructions. He refused, arguing that he couldn't abandon soldiers on the ground that were about to be overrun by enemies. Even though he had direct orders from a rear admiral and a general, he was adamant. He even switched off his radio, continuing his own mission against all commands. When he landed back at base, he thought that he was about to be punished for ignoring senior officers. But to his surprise, things changed when the admiral entered the room. The admiral told the pilot, that's the best thing I ever saw. What is the largest plane to ever land on an aircraft carrier? Well, in 1963, the Naval Air Test Center faced an enormous challenge to land the colossal C-130 Hercules with its 132 feet wingspan on the flight deck of the USS Forrestal. The plan needed to work as U.S. carrier fleets were venturing into remote locations. Large planes were essential for resource transportation and strategic operations. The crew assembled for this historic attempt included Lieutenant James Flatley III, an experienced pilot chosen for his fearless approach. Their preparation was quick and they were given a chance to do 100 test landings at Patuxent River. The USS Forrestal was ready. It wasn't going to be easy for Lieutenant Flatley. The plane was about to be challenged by 50 miles per hour winds and gusts of up to 60 knots. The Hercules approached the carrier 42 times in total, completing 21 full stop landings and 29 touch and go landings. He was stationed on Shemya Island, a speck of volcanic rock in the Aleutian chain. He was Army Air Force Sergeant Hale Burge, and he was a mechanic who worked on B-17, B-24, and P-40 planes at the tiny airfield. It was there that he would put in 18-hour shifts to get the bombers and fighters ready for their runs over Japan. And it was there that he risked his life to save a P-40 pilot who had crashed on the runway and became engulfed in flames. He pulled him out of the wreckage seconds before it exploded. I'll never forget what you did for me, the young pilot told Sergeant Burge through tears before being transferred to Okinawa. Years later, Burge was taking a commercial flight back to the United States when he was called to the cockpit. The pilot requests you visit with him, the stewardess told the startled Burge. You're sitting up here with me, said the captain as he introduced him to the crew. I wouldn't be here without you. Hale Burge passed away in 2015. Police officers can lie. I had a client who received a phone call from a detective saying that he wanted to just ask him a couple of questions about a theft investigation. You know, he said, look, man, if you just give me a call, let's have a conversation. Let's sit down and talk it through. I'll cut you loose after I get a few of those answers from you. Well, of course, my client initially, before he called me, he decided, okay, I'm going to start having a conversation with the detective. So he goes over and starts talking to him. And the first thing the detective starts doing is asking him questions. But then that leads to an interrogation where the officer says, hey, look, man, I already know what happened. In reality, I already have a video of you stealing the trailer. It would all be better for you if you just admitted to what you did wrong. Well, the client, of course, freaked out. And immediately, he stopped the interview, and he picked up the phone, and he called me. Police can legally lie to you about almost anything to get you to talk. Don't fall for it. 
don't say anything. Remember, even if you try to give innocent answers to questions that they give to you, it can be twisted and turned. And if they're, look, if they want to try to say you did something wrong, if you start opening your mouth, they'll find a way to try to prove you did. An F-14 crew was in the middle of Afghanistan when they realized they didn't have enough fuel to make it back to their carrier. They had been launched from the USS Roosevelt that morning to bomb a military complex near Kabul. Already they had had to make three dangerous passes over the target before having to fly away with a hung bomb. Now, as they headed back to the Roosevelt, they were told the tanker that was supposed to refuel them had an engine fire and was leaving the area. They knew there was an emergency divert field in Pakistan, but since no U.S. aircraft had actually used it, they had no idea what to expect. In fact, as they landed, they were reluctant to shut off their engines, unsure whether or not the Pakistanis would be able to get it started again. But after a couple of hours, the plane was refueled, and after a quick takeoff to avoid being shot at by locals, the exhausted pilots finally landed on the Roosevelt some 27 hours after they had left. The incredible account of the smallest soldier receiving the Silver Star during the Vietnam War. Lieutenant Richard J. Flaherty. On the 20th of April 1968, 2nd Lieutenant Flaherty distinguished himself while serving as a platoon leader of Company C. His platoon was involved in combat operations in the Quang Dinh district. At 11.40 hours, 2nd Lieutenant Flaherty's platoon was taken under intensive automatic weapons and rocket-propelled grenade fire. 2nd Lieutenant Flaherty, realizing the seriousness of the contact, immediately maneuvered his platoon to deliver a flanking assault against the enemy's position. Throughout the battle, he repeatedly exposed himself to the hostile fire in order to better direct the suppressive fire of his squad. Lieutenant Flaherty immediately called a 90 recoilless rifle team to his position after having spotted an enemy bunker position to his front, which was delivering automatic weapons fire on his platoon. Lieutenant Flaherty then personally directed and assisted the 90 recoilless rifle team in the assault of the enemy bunker, braving the intense hail of hostile fire along with grenades exploding in close proximity. Under Lieutenant Flaherty's astute direction and leadership, the enemy bunker was swiftly destroyed, enabling his platoon to advance and continue its devastating attack against the enemy. Second Lieutenant Flaherty's extraordinary heroism while engaged in close combat with a well-dug in enemy force was in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service. God bless Lieutenant Flaherty, and God bless our vets. The flight deck crew of an aircraft carrier are surrounded by danger. Propellers can cut you into ribbons, jet intakes and exhaust can burn you to a crisp, and there's always the chance of falling over a hundred feet into icy waters. But for one yellow shirt, those dangers were really brought home when an F-18 accidentally snagged a wire after being waved off. He happened to be standing by the arresting wire when the F-18 that was about to land suddenly pulled up, but at that point the plane was mere feet from the wire and couldn't clear it. As its tailhook caught on the wire, the F-18 lurched up, exhaust roaring, but the cable pulled it back down towards the deck. That's when the yellow shirt made a run for it. Sure, the F-18 was going to end up exploding across the flight deck. As he ran, the F-18 smashed down onto the deck, but it didn't explode. Despite sparks, some damage to the plane, and a bloodied pilot, they were spared a potentially catastrophic deck fire. It was so close in that, you, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you're cautious in your shooting because you didn't want to shoot your own people. And we had a close combat like that, uh, that that can be a problem. So yes, there was there was hand to hand. There was, What's that like? Uh, you know, <laughs> when it's over, it's scary. 
<laughs> but what's happening, you're just so busy doing what you're taught to do that uh, it, it, I, don't, I don't remember ever being scared when it was happening. But boy, after it was over, I just, you know, it's, uh, it comes, becomes a reality then. And it's, it's uh, uh, I don't know how to say it, but it's, it shakes you. The USS Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group has started moving toward the eastern Mediterranean Sea, where it will join the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group. The Pentagon says that is an attempt to deter further hostile actions against Israel. Squadrons of F-15 and F-16 fighter aircrafts, as well as A-10s, have also been deployed by the Air Force. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that the increases to U.S. force posture, quote, signaled the United States' ironclad commitment to Israel security and our resolve to deter any state or non-state actors seeking to escalate the war. Actually, I had no real direction from my parents because they were, their main thing was having a, their kids become Americanized. Uh, and uh, it was difficult. It was very, very difficult in those times. Uh, Poor, very, very poor. If you got a job, a good job was $18 a week if you had a good job. And uh, when I come home from the Navy, uh, jobs were, uh, house, homes were selling for $3,000, a brand new home, $3,000. So you can imagine what today's market is like. <laughs> hard to, it's hard to believe. But uh, I was fortunate. I played sports in high school. I played the basketball, baseball, and football. I earned a, a letter in football. I love sports. Uh, I'm very fortunate so far today being fairly healthy. And uh, I hope to make 100. That's my goal. And, uh, and uh, where else can I go from here? <laughs> and that was the military shorts back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the motivational shorts. I want you to ponder these four questions. Here's the first one, and that's why. Why pay the price? Why work this hard? Why go this far? Why try to learn this much? Why develop yourself to the full? Why try to become all that you can possibly become? That's a good question, why? And you're the only one personally that can answer that question for yourself. You've got to have your own list of whys. Here's what I want you to do when you go home after you've left this extravaganza. Work on your list of whys. One of the big thrusts for success is to come up with a strong enough why. In leadership training, here's what we learned. If the why is powerful, the how is easy. Now, here's number two. The first question to ponder when you go home is why. Here's another good answer to why. It's the second question. Why not? Why not see how much you can earn? Why not see how much you can learn? Why not see how many skills you can develop? Why not see what kind of person you can become? Why not see what kind of influence you can have? Why not see how many people you can rescue from oblivion? I want you to take that personal. Why not? Why not? Now here's number three. 
why not you? I wish I could say that to each of you individually, but it would take a couple of lifetimes to sit down and talk with each of you individually. But I want you to take it personal. And my personal question to you is, why not you? You've got the brains. You can make decisions. You can study the plan. You can change your life. You can grow immensely in the next few years. You can make your dreams come true. You can build a financial wall around your family. Nothing can get through. You can become healthy. You can become powerful. Why not you? And I'm here to say that I'm ready to pledge my support to make your personal dreams come true. I asked the question, why not you? But I'm not going to ask it and just walk away. I'm going to ask it and walk with you. And now here's my last question. My very last question on the questions to ponder is why not now? There never was a better time. Take this dream and not let it die. Take this dream and give it life. Take this dream and breathe into it your own personal spirit until finally it becomes a flame that burns around the whole world. Let's go do it now. The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride in cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. There is no more unhealthy being, no man less worthy of respect, than he who either really holds or feigns to hold. An attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty. Whether an achievement or in that noble effort which, even if it fails, comes to second achievement. It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. Or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat.
undisciplined boys grow up to be undisciplined men. You know the problem you're going to have? Yes. Undisciplined men end up in the hospital or in a prison. Or they end up in a grave. That's what happens to undisciplined men. I got four daughters and three sons. I raised my sons entirely different than I raised them girls. Because I had to. Now, do I want my girls to be successful? Yes. Do I want them to get equal pay? Yes. Do I want them to be treated fairly? Yes. Do I let men run over them? Ain't no way. I raised my daughters to be strong, independent, and all of that. But them sons of mine and they mothers know, let me have these boys. I ain't over here trying to turn the girls into women because I don't know how. But I know about these boys, and I know what it takes to be a man, so I got them. Well, you want to go buy a shampoo. You might think, well, how many shampoos do you want to choose from? And you think, well, how about a thousand? I want to walk into a pharmacy and I want to see a thousand shampoos on the shelf because then I can make the best choice. And so then you let people have access to the thousand shampoos that there are on a pharmacy shelf and you test them to see if they're satisfied with their purchase. And the answer is they're not satisfied at all. And the reason for that is what's the probability that you pick the best shampoo out of that thousand? And the probability is zero because like what the hell do you know about shampoo? For sure you picked a suboptimal choice. Now if there was only one shampoo, well that might annoy you too. What you probably want is like three infinite choice is equivalent to endless anxiety and the abyss if you want to see if you're a brave person wait when things go completely to pieces when things are the worst when your very best deal falls apart and your rent is late and you're tired and you're sick and everybody is mad at you and your car doesn't work then it's the person that picks themselves up and says nothing is going to stop me develop the quality of being unstoppable say in yourself that no matter what life throws at me it'll never stop me no matter how rough it gets, I will never quit. And nothing will ever stop me. Make the decision that you can be tired, you can be worn out, but nothing is ever going to stop you. It's a wonderful feeling. It's, a, it's the basis of self-esteem. Five things Jesus never said that people believe he said. One, follow your heart. Jesus never said that. He said, follow me because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Two, be true to yourself. Jesus never said that either. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Three, believe in yourself. Jesus never said that. He said, believe in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Four, live your truth. Jesus never said that. When Pontius Pilate questions Jesus about truth, Jesus said, I am the truth, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus will set you free. Five, as long as you are happy, that's all that matters. Jesus never said that either. He said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? That is what Jesus said. Look, man, forget about the religious trappings. Here's hell. Hell is when you get cancer. And then you're bitter and resentful about it. and You make your last six months a living fucking nightmare. Right. And so you might say, well, you've got cancer and that sucks. And no doubt it sucks. And maybe it's unfair. And probably it is. And maybe even, you know, God and Satan themselves bet against you. You're going to aim up and maintain your dignity and your integrity? Or are you going to take a bad situation and make it into every goddamn nightmare you can possibly imagine? Think, well, of course you have to aim up no matter what happens to you. And you think, well, that's not fair. It's like, well, it's better than the alternative. Yeah. And what does fair have to do with it? What's your choice? You're going to dig a deeper pit? Or are you going to be, are you going to have some integrity in the face of life's catastrophe?
need to stop explaining yourself. You are not on trial. And people around you that love you and appreciate you and see the good in you don't need you to put yourself on trial by explaining yourself all the time. And if people can't see that about you, then they're the people that you shouldn't be bothering with trying to explain yourself to anyway. So I want you to um, explain yourself less and give less mental, emotional energy to prepping yourself for um, being on trial again tomorrow. Because that person in your life, you feel always needs you or makes you feel a need to explain yourself excuse yourself justify yourself and it's exhausting and i want you to stop it you don't need to explain yourself anymore we want you and i want you to be loved by people who understand you without explanation and get you it is a joy when you do life with people that get you <laughs> doesn't matter stephen p jobs it's fine steve jobs is fine in most companies, um, if you're new and you ask, you know, why is it done this way? The answer is because that's the way we do it here or because that's the way it's always been done. And in my opinion, the largest contribution of much of this quality thinking is to approach these ways of doing things, these processes, at, at scientifically, where there is a theory behind why we do them. There is a description of what we do, and most importantly, there is an opportunity to always question what we do. And this is a radically different approach to business processes than the traditional one, because it's always done this way. And that single shift is everything, in my opinion, because it, it, in that shift is a tremendous optimistic point of view about the people that work in a company. It says these people are very smart. They're not, they're not pawns. They're very smart. And if given the opportunity to change and improve, they will. They will improve the processes if there's, if there's a mechanism for it. And um, that, that optimistic humanism uh, I find very appealing. And I think we have countless examples uh, that it works. Quote from John Maxwell, one of my favorite things he's ever quoted. You have to see more than others see and see before others see. When you're building a business, you're so involved in the day-to-day -day that you're never able to actually see what's coming around the corner because you're the one setting the vision and setting the tone for your company. At the end of the day, people are following what you're putting out and they're following your vision and your leadership and your direction. So you have to see before and you have to focus on the future. You have to really put in the time this is a practice that you have to engage in if it doesn't come naturally to you you have to spend time and invest time into that the next level of growth and development in your business is you focusing on the vision and actually working on the business not in the business where are we going what are we doing what are the things we need to accomplish to set the vision and the direction for the company anything that stays still dies there's nothing like staying still you're either growing or dying if you're always working in the business nobody's setting the future for your company nobody's guiding the ship to say hey this is where we're going and this is the future we're going to have and that was the uh motivational shorts back in a minute
Thank you, thank you. And now, Bishop Robert Barron. What's freedom? Well, our society says freedom from external constraint so I can find freedom for self-expression, right? Don't tread on me. Don't tell me what to do. I determine my life. That's not biblical freedom. What's biblical freedom? It's freedom from attachment so I can find freedom for doing the will of God. And now I know my mission, and I've so rid myself of attachment that I can perform the mission. I can move in haste. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free, says Paul. What else does Paul say? I am the slave of Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't make a lick of sense to people in our society. It makes perfect biblical sense, doesn't it? To be a slave of Christ Jesus is to find real freedom. And that was Bishop Robert Barron, back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the next part of chapter 3, amidst the turmoil of events from the 33 Strategies of War. You cannot be everywhere or fight everyone. Your time and energy are limited, and you must learn how to preserve them. Exhaustion and frustration can ruin your presence of mind. The world is full of fools, people who cannot wait to get results, who change with the wind, who can't see past their noses. You encounter them everywhere. The indecisive boss, the rash colleague, the hysterical subordinate. When working alongside fools, do not fight them. Instead, think of them the way you think of children or pets, not important enough to affect your mental balance. Detach yourself emotionally. And while you're inwardly laughing at their foolishness, indulge them in one of their more harmless ideas. The ability to stay cheerful in the face of fools is an important skill. Crowd out feelings of panic by focusing on simple tasks. Lord Yamanouchi, an aristocrat of 18th century Japan, once asked his tea master to accompany him on a visit to Edo, later Tokyo, where he was to stay for a while. He wanted to show off to his fellow courtiers his retainer's skill in the rituals of the tea ceremony. Now, the tea master knew everything there was to know about the tea ceremony, but little else. He was a peaceful man, He dressed, however, like a samurai, as his high position required. One day, as the tea master was walking in the big city, he was accosted by a samurai who challenged him to a duel. The tea master was not a swordsman and tried to explain this to the samurai, but the man refused to listen. To turn the challenge down would disgrace both the tea master's family and Lord Yamanouchi. He had to accept, though that meant certain death. And accept he did requesting only that the duel be put off to the next day. His wish was granted. In panic, the tea master hurried to the nearest fencing school. If he were to die, he wanted to learn how to die honorably. To see the fencing master ordinarily required letters of introduction, but the tea master was so insistent and so clearly terrified that at last he was given an interview. The fencing master listened to his story. The swordsman was sympathetic. He would teach the poor visitor the art of dying, but first he wanted to be served some tea. 
The tea master proceeded to perform the ritual, his manner calm, his concentration perfect. Finally, the fencing master yelled out in excitement, No need for you to learn the art of death. The state of mind you're in now is enough for you to face any samurai. When you see your challenger, imagine you're about to serve tea to a guest. Take off your coat, fold it up carefully, and lay your fan on it just as you do at work. This ritual completed, the tea master was to raise his sword in the same alert spirit. Then he would be ready to die. The tea master agreed to do as his teacher said. The next day he went to meet the samurai, who could not help but notice the completely calm and dignified expression on his opponent's face as he took off his coat. Perhaps, the samurai thought, this fumbling tea master is actually a skilled swordsman. He bowed, begged pardon for his behavior the day before, and hurried away. When circumstances scare us, our imagination tends to take over, filling our minds with endless anxieties. You need to gain control of your imagination, something easier said than done. Often, the best way to calm down and give yourself such control is to force the mind to concentrate on something relatively simple, a calming ritual, a repetitive task that you are good at. You are creating the kind of composure you naturally have when your mind is absorbed in a problem. A focused mind has no room for anxiety or for the effects of an overactive imagination. Once you have regained your mental balance, you can then face the problem at hand. At the first sign of any kind of fear, practice this technique until it becomes a habit. Being able to control your imagination at intense moments is a crucial skill. Unintimidate yourself. Intimidation will always threaten your presence of mind, and it is a hard feeling to combat. During World War II, the composer Dmitry Shostakovich and several of his colleagues were called into a meeting with the Russian ruler Joseph Stalin, who had commissioned them to write a new national anthem. Meetings with Stalin were terrifying. One misstep could lead you into a very dark alley. He would stare you down until you felt your throat tighten. And, as meetings with Stalin often did, this one took a bad turn. The ruler began to criticize one of the composers for his poor arrangement of his anthem. Scared silly, the man admitted he had used an arranger who had done a bad job. Here he was digging several graves. Clearly the poor arranger could be called to task. The composer was responsible for the hire, and he too could pay for the mistake. And what of the other composers, including Shostakovich? Stalin could be relentless once he smelled fear. Shostakovich had heard enough. It was foolish, he said, to blame the arranger, who was mostly following orders. He then subtly redirected the conversation to a different subject, whether a composer should do his own orchestrations. What did Stalin think on the matter? Always eager to prove his expertise, Stalin swallowed the bait. The dangerous moment passed. Shostakovich maintained his presence of mind in several ways. First, Instead of letting Stalin intimidate him, he forced himself to see the man as he was. Short, fat, ugly, unimaginative. The dictator's famous piercing gaze was just a trick, a sign of his own insecurity. Second, Shostakovich faced up to Stalin, talking to him normally and straightforwardly. By his actions and tone of voice, the composer showed that he was not intimidated.
Stalin fed off fear. If, without being aggressive or brazen, you showed no fear, he would generally leave you alone. The key to staying unintimidated is to convince yourself that the person you're facing is a mere mortal, no different than you, which is in fact the truth. See the person, not the myth. Imagine him or her as a child, as someone riddled with insecurities. Cutting the other person down to size will help you to keep your mental balance. Develop your Fingerspitzengefühl, fingertip feel. Presence of mind depends not only on your mind's ability to come to your aid in difficult situations, but also on the speed with which this happens. Waiting until the next day to think of the right action to take does you no good at all. Speed here means responding to circumstances with rapidity and making lightning-quick decisions. This power is often read as a kind of intuition, what the Germans call Fingerspitzengefühl, fingertip feel. Erwin Rommel, who led the German tank campaign in North Africa during World War II, had great fingertip feel. He could sense when the Allies would attack and from what direction. In choosing a line of advance, he had an uncanny feel for his enemy's weakness. At the start of a battle, he could intuit his enemy's strategy before it unfolded. To Rommel's men, their general seemed to have a genius for war, and he did possess a quicker mind than most. But Rommel also did things to enhance his quickness, things that reinforced his feel for battle. First, he devoured information about the enemy, from details about its weaponry to the psychological traits of the opposing generals. Second, he made himself an expert in tank technology so that he could get the most out of his equipment. Third, he not only memorized maps of the North African desert, but would fly over it at great risk to get a bird's-eye view of the battlefield. Finally, he personalized his relationship with his men. He always had a sense of their morale and knew exactly what he could expect from them. Rommel didn't just study his men, his tanks, the terrain, and the enemy. He got inside their skin, understood the spirit that animated them, what made them tick. Having felt his way into these things, in battle, he entered a state of mind in which he did not have to think consciously of the situation. The totality of what was going on was in his blood, at his fingertips. He had fingerspitzengefühl. Whether or not you have the mind of a Rommel, there are things you can do to help you respond faster and bring out that intuitive feel that all animals possess. Deep knowledge of the terrain will let you process information faster than your enemy. A tremendous advantage. Getting a feel for the spirit of men and material, thinking your way into them instead of looking at them from outside, will help to put you in a different frame of mind, less conscious and forced, more unconscious and intuitive. Get your mind into the habit of making lightning-quick decisions, trusting your fingertip feel. Your mind will advance in a kind of mental blitzkrieg, moving past your opponents before they realize what has hit them. Finally, do not think of presence of mind as a quality useful only in periods of adversity, something to switch on and off as you need it. Cultivate it as an everyday condition. Confidence, fearlessness, and self-reliance are as crucial in times of peace as in times of war. 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt showed his tremendous mental toughness and grace under pressure, not only during the crisis of the Depression and World War II, but in everyday situations, in his dealings with his family, his cabinet, his own polio-racked body. The better you get at the game of war, the more your warrior frame of mind will do for you in daily life. When a crisis does come, your mind will already be calm and prepared. And that was uh, the next part of Chapter 3, Amidst the Turmoil of Events, from the 33 Strategies of War, by Robert Greene. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the uh, remainder of Chapter 4, Policing the Community from Policecraft, by Adam Platinga and ask for their cooperation and you don't get it maybe it's because you look quite a bit like the last cop they dealt with same uniform same gun belt and that cop gave them the strong impression that he found their problems amusing and then he called them fuck sticks the citizen saw inscribed on the side of that police car the words integrity dedication and professionalism but they weren't shown even one of those things as a result, when the police need help from the community, they'll be stonewalled. That's why one of the key rules of law enforcement is this. Don't be a dick. The don't be a dick rule is also why you'll find yourself performing various tasks that aren't technically part of your job at all, like helping a kid fix a flat tire on his bicycle, or assisting an elderly woman with a blown fuse in her darkened home, or taking phone calls at the station from senior citizens who are having problems with their credit or want to complain about the state of the world and public morals. This is why all across America, desk sergeants are on the phone with citizens attentively sort of listening to a litany of complaints that they can't do anything about. Okay, Mrs. Hargreaves, the desk sergeant says. I don't quite understand those rollerbladers either. Thank you for keeping me informed. I'll talk to you again next week. My old Milwaukee partner, Rolf Mueller, remember his name, because I'll be talking about him again, used to sweep up the broken glass caused by vandals, especially if the homeowner looked at all elderly or ailing. He'd politely ask for a broom and dustpan, and then go to work, emphasizing the second word in the title, public servant. No, you're not a bike tech, or an electrician, or a member of a cleanup crew. It's not written anywhere in your mission statement, but it is your mission to connect with the community, to build goodwill and a sense of trust. So in a sense, it's precisely your job. There are, of course, limits to this. Go get me a beer, an especially soused weekend reveler once demanded of me during a disturbance call. The beer remained ungotten. Civility and good community relations call for giving the back seat of the patrol car a once-over before you give a citizen a courtesy ride home or take them to a crime scene to look at a suspect. You respond to a lot of assignments in the city which cuts into opportunities for vehicle maintenance and beautification. This means that, although you put a lot of gamey characters in the back seat, you also wash out those back seats infrequently. You want to avoid a, hey... I think I just sat in piss moment with your citizen passenger. Community relations also means looking professional but still approachable. 
So take the aviator shades off once in a while and limit the number of tough guy upward head nods to no more than three per shift. And if you put on latex gloves to search someone because you are wary of hep C and staph infections, the suspect you are searching will sometimes protest, What, you think I got AIDS or something? The proper diplomatic response is, No, I'm trying to protect you from my germs. Community organizers concerned about police-society relations say officers should live in the kinds of black and brown neighborhoods they police. I understand why they say this, and I believe it comes from a well-meaning place. And some cities have programs where cops can live in public housing for free or at a greatly reduced rate. The federal government has a HUD initiative called Good Neighbor Next Door that allows for teachers, firefighters, and police officers to receive a 50% discount on a home price on eligible properties in certain low-income zip codes, provided they lived there for a certain number of years. It wasn't part of any program, but I tried living in such a neighborhood for a few years when I was a Milwaukee cop. I was single at the time, with no kids. I figured if anyone was to do it, it might as well be me. To call my experience a nightmare might be melodramatic, but not by much. I went in with honorable intentions. I thought I could add stability to the block, maybe troubleshoot a few neighborhood problems, generally be a force for good. I was shockingly naive. The highlights of my stay included waking up to a gun-related homicide down the street, being surrounded by an angry crowd when I tried to break up a street fight off-duty, and going to the laundromat and coming face-to-face -face with a violent drunk I had arrested the week prior. The whole block knew who I was. I wasn't trying to hide it, but it didn't matter because the toothless drug addict next door told everyone. I might as well have worn a blinking neon sign that said, Cop. I became embroiled in a running conflict with the crack house across the street, which culminated in one of its occupants throwing the extension to a socket wrench at my head while I sat on my front porch. It whizzed past my left ear. I began creeping out my back door and crossing over the rear neighbor's vegetable garden so the crack house wouldn't know when I was home. It didn't help. Someone broke into my place, presumably looking for my gun, which they didn't find because, ironically enough, I always had it with me due to the wretched neighborhood. One night while off duty, I was flagged down by a man who said his sister was getting beaten up by her boyfriend inside their house. I responded alone, even though I had no radio or backup. A foolish decision that I wouldn't have made if I had been on duty, but somehow felt compelled to do off-duty because, well, I was the cop on the block. A series of armed robberies close by had me walking to and from my car with my hand on my unholstered gun hidden in my front sweatshirt pocket, ready for close encounters. It was an extended period of danger, both real and imagined, stress, hypervigilance, and unrest. I would spend all shift at work dealing with violence and strife and come home to more of the same. I looked over my shoulder a lot. I felt constantly under siege, made it a bit hard to unwind. I did, however, enjoy paying $375 a month for a three-bedroom apartment. As a guy living alone with low overhead, I didn't have a lot of stuff, so I used one of the bedrooms just to store my single raincoat. A raincoat storage room. I bet not even the Cook brothers have that.
At night, I would open my window and listen to people argue about unpaid bills, infidelity, drug abuse, and loneliness. It was the kind of neighborhood where the police had to fight the feeling to just let crime go, to battle the attitude that these people, in the end, deserved each other and the fate they had accepted or been dealt, perhaps long ago. Not all of my neighbors made me wary. Among them was Andre, the cheerful Frenchman next door, who shook my hand so enthusiastically when he found out I was a cop that I wasn't sure if I'd get that hand back. He'd regularly invite me over for coffee and tell me how the neighborhood used to be better some twenty years ago before the dealers moved in. And I wasn't in the same lot as those who lived around me. I wasn't trapped there. I could have afforded to live elsewhere. And eventually I did. I have a family now, and our home is near a serene cul-de-sac far from the city I police. It's an oasis from work. There's no chaos and little drama. People clean up after their dogs. They jog. They wave cheery hellos to each other. They take pride in their properties. In many ways, it's the exact opposite of work. That's why I like it. I feel my family is safe here. I want my family to be safe. So this is just one man's account of living in a rough neighborhood. Maybe another cop could pull it off. Maybe they wouldn't have abandoned Andre as I did. But if so, they are forged of stronger stuff than me. As police officers, we are willing to put ourselves in harm's way for an eight or ten hour shift. But when we're off, we'd prefer to live in peace. There has to be some separation between the worlds of work and home. Otherwise, it's liable to drive a fellow just past crazy. The dissenting voice in society. Nothing could be more American. Protesters aren't always right, and sometimes they fail to meaningfully advance the discussion and just yell a lot. But civil disobedience has created profound, lasting change in everything from women's suffrage to civil rights, and if you think you've been marginalized, you're going to want to make some noise. However... If you are taking to the streets and clogging up traffic in support of a cause, especially if your demo is spontaneous and without a permit, allow me to present a modest proposal. It is this. Have a point and a plan. A point is a clearly defined goal. Get City Hall to change a policy, support a gay marriage amendment, rail against soybean tariffs. A plan is something like, we will march for 30 minutes, be peaceful, and stay off the freeways. Because if you have no point and no plan, you are just protesting for protesting's sake. People are less likely to be drawn to your cause when you annoy the crap out of them by blocking intersections and spray-painting their property. You've just given them more reasons not to listen to you. And you are burning up a tremendous amount of finite police resources to swing traffic and prevent violence from breaking out among your ranks. Bet you'd be steamed if you got robbed at knife point and there were no available police cars to send to you because all units were tied up dealing with the gridlock, vandalism, and melees generated by the Occupy Anarchy Everything Sucks demo. Now, if you are a protester who hates the police and everything about them, perhaps this argument won't sway you much. But you know the kinds of people stuck in your manufactured gridlock who you may want to consider? Parents especially single mothers who are paying a dollar for every minute they are late to pick up their child from daycare. People who are trying to get to a job interview on time. The sick, injured, and dying 
whom ambulances are rushing to the ER. Folks who really have to use the bathroom. When you're standing online at an angry protest equipped with your long baton, your professional game face, and your riot helmet, which will start to smart after a while, like your head is wedged deeply in a metal wastebasket, the protesters on the other side of the line, many of whom may not care about any particular cause, but are just using a social controversy as a convenient hook to hang violence and looting on, will have quite a bit to say to you. Not much of it is a tribute. It's a lot like this. Fuck you, pig. You're all wife-beaters. Oink-oink, bad cop. No donuts sucking at the public trough. Faggot-ass cops. Hope you all die. They say these things both to express their heartfelt disdain for you and in hopes of eliciting a negative reaction from you. And you are not to respond. There's absolutely no upside to it. It's not the time or place for a civic-minded dialogue. You shouldn't even point out to the protester with a cardboard sign that there are two L's in Orwell. And under those circumstances, even your most benign utterance can only serve to inflame a crowd that is already inflamed. You are there to keep the peace and facilitate their constitutional right to assemble and repeatedly call you vile names. That there is the police nurturing democracy. But even given the whole sticks and stones philosophy... Sometimes their rants can get to you. Some punk is in your face calling you worthless and commanding you to suck his dick and you're thinking, Hey, I helped catch a trio of armed robbers the other night and this week I solved an attempted murder case. What, pray tell, have been some of your own recent accomplishments, ass face? And getting to level 38 of World of Warcraft doesn't count. Let's compare achievements and see who is found wanting. It's a bit childish, but you do it anyway. And you can't get in trouble because it's all in your head. Your thoughts, although exceedingly unprofessional, are still your own. One thought you may wish to share with the protest community is that being disenfranchised isn't a license to do whatever you want. You can understand the rage that stems from a divisive police incident and still hold people accountable for the crimes they commit during protests. But sometimes, the chaos unfolding all around you reaches such a critical mass that your righteous indignation flames out and is replaced by something more coldly analytical. You'll see a rioter coming out of a store with something that doesn't make any sense, like three left shoes. Hey man, don't you want to go back in there and get a ride? If you must loot, do so properly. Police citizen community meetings are where the rubber meets the road, especially if the mood is especially testy between law enforcement and the public. Some supervisors will look frantically for a subordinate to send in their place. Kuchak, I need you to go to the public safety forum at the Santos Projects tonight. But, Lieutenant, I went to the last one. At such meetings, cops addressing a skeptical, if not outright angry crowd, will emphasize their roots, i.e., I grew up four blocks from here. Some familiar words and phrases get trotted out. Stakeholder. Gatekeeper. We're working with our community partners. We're working with the mayor's office. If done right, community meetings can be an invaluable way of bridging the gap between the police and the public. A prevailing police weakness is our inability to seriously consider a point of view other than our own. The public might be wrong on some issues or have unrealistic expectations of the police. But we have to listen to them. What was it that Atticus Finch said about really understanding someone? 
how you have to climb in their skin and walk around for a while? A lot of cops aren't willing to do that with people, and a lot of people aren't willing to do that with cops. But if things go south, what you get is a free-for-all where everybody shouts, no one can understand anyone, and nothing gets done. The ugly irony is that protesters who, rightly, demand police accountability and transparency will attend these meetings and make it a point to drown out the cops with chants, name-calling, and boos so the police aren't afforded an opportunity to demonstrate either accountability or transparency. The representative from the department usually tries to hang in there as long as he can. But there comes a time when there's really no point in trying to make a lone voice heard in a cacophony. So he'll leave. Yeah, fucking run away, someone from the crowd will say. Then the protesters will go to their websites and brag about how they shut the system down. Way to go, guys. Cutting that meeting short so everybody loses. Do you see how you're working against yourselves? For your next trick, why don't you go scatter anti-littering pamphlets all over the town square? One of the recurring themes at community meetings is the complaint about the over-militarization of law enforcement. And it's true that the police don't have to respond to every whiff of unrest with armored vehicles and long guns with scopes, because it can make us look less like public servants and more like shock troops. But this anti-militarization movement has its limits. Like when citizens say, Why do those cops have helmets and shields? That just incites the crowd. Don't know about that. Most crowds seem to have a way of inciting themselves on their own just fine. You like your shield and helmet because it can stop a brick or bottle from knocking you unconscious. You hate being unconscious, especially in the midst of an angry mob. How about this tentative social compact? Stop throwing dangerous shit at our heads and we'll lose the helmets. As a cop, you are out there to serve everybody equally with dignity and professionalism. From the stumblebums to the chads to the male hipster with a fauxhawk, gauged ears and iridescent green shoes whose name is Thistle. You don't have to necessarily understand them all, mind you. Just serve them. But serving them requires getting out of your patrol car. Your relationship with folks must be more than being their arresting officer. Police departments organize toy drives, deliver food to elderly shut-ins, and referee youth sports leagues not just because it is right to do so, but because it lets the police have positive contact with the citizens we serve. The societal problem does not exist that the police can buckle down and arrest our way out of. These issues are too complex, too entrenched. A guy I know on the Milwaukee Police Department used to aggressively pursue street hoodlums, and once he nabbed them, he would just as aggressively try to help them find meaningful work. Get a job with UPS, man, he'd say. They got clean uniforms. They teach you how to lift boxes right. I don't know how successful he was with this approach, how many jobs were obtained, and how many were held down for any length of time. But regardless of the statistics, he understood that the police aren't just in the crime-fighting business. We are also in the business of housing any time we take someone to a shelter or refer them to Homeward Bound, which can provide a bus ticket for a stranded traveler to go home. We are in the education business when we go to schools to read to students. We are in the mental health business when we approach someone in crisis, assure them that they aren't in trouble and we're there to help, and transport them to an assessment center 
where they can be stabilized. There are cops, especially old-timers, who resent these additional duties and bristle at being labeled anything that sounds even remotely like social worker. But if you're serious about leaving your patrol sector just a bit better than you found it, you better get used to it. Even when you do all you can to bridge the gap with the community, you'll still occasionally return to your patrol car after completing an assignment and find one of your vehicle windows punched out or your door awash in graffiti like SFPD sucks dicks. You're irritated at the vandals. What a bunch of dicks. But you know what never gets vandalized? That's right, fire trucks. They remain immaculate, even gleaming, thanks to the frequent hose-downs by the fellows at the station house. And if they did ever suffer graffiti, it would probably be something tasteful, even honorific, like Metro Fire. Could they be any more courageous? In terms of bridging the gap, on my last day as a police officer, before I was promoted to sergeant, my partner and I were on the unit block of 6th Street, and I encountered a man I'll call Mike. Mike was a man in his late 50s, a constant on the corner, usually drunk, although not so drunk that he couldn't warn the drug dealers we were coming. He would occasionally threaten to kill me, although it was hard to tell because he always mumbled. I told Mike I was leaving to become a sergeant. He mumbled something. Then I took out a pack of Newport lights that I saved for suicidal jumpers and reluctant witnesses. I gave him one and had one myself. We sat at the corner and smoked. Hey, I said, you remember all those times you threatened to kill me? What was that all about? Mike just smiled his mysterious smile and kept smoking as we continued to broker an uneasy peace. For just a moment, the gap felt bridged. But although Mike doesn't quite crack my top ten list of favorite community members of all time, one of the slots on that list definitely goes to Ms. Vicki Williams-Tillman, a 56-year-old woman from Baton Rouge. In the spring of 2017, she was listening to gospel music in her car on her way to Sam's Club when she saw a man repeatedly striking a Baton Rouge police officer in the head with the officer's baton. Williams Tillman called the police and then jumped on the attacker's back, helping fend him off until other officers arrived. She hurt her wrist in the process. I could see in his eyes he needed help, she told a reporter. He don't have time to think about it. I did what God needed me to do. Thank you, ma'am. I will be sending Mrs. Williams Tillman a copy of this book, plus a gift card to Sam's Club. And that was the uh, end of Chapter 4 from Police Craft, uh, What Cops Know About Crime, Community, and Violence by Adam Plantinga. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. This is Ron, your host, the only true conservative in the United States today, bidding adios to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there and reminding you to be honest, smart, and beautiful and remember that the left has no authority, no power, and they can't win. <laughs>